What makes violent people violent? Criminologist Lonnie Athens says this. When people look at a dangerous violent criminal at the beginning of his developmental process rather than at the very end of it, they will see, perhaps unexpectedly, that the dangerous violent criminal began as a relatively benign human being, for whom they would probably have more sympathy than antipathy. Perhaps more importantly, people will conclude that the creation of dangerous violent criminals is largely preventable. Therefore, if society fails to take any significant steps to stop the process behind the creation of dangerous violent criminals, it tacitly becomes an accomplice in creating them. End quote. To solve a problem, we must first understand it. And in the case of dangerous violent people, understanding the root causes of their violence at the individual level is key to unlocking answers to dramatically reducing violence at the community level. For that reason, this is one of the most important and potentially impactful episodes we'll share on this program. This is Justice Voices, stories that need to be told, voices that need to be heard. Welcome to Justice Voices. I'm your host, David Risley. Today's episode tackles a big subject. For those of you with limited time constraints, I'll start by providing a big-picture overview. I'll then describe each of the three sections of this episode, only the first of which we'll cover in this part one of this two-part episode. But first, what do I mean when I speak of violent people? I don't mean people who are capable of violence and occasionally do engage in violence, but generally are prone to be nonviolent. By violent people, I mean people who are highly prone to violence, people who are dangerous because violence has become so ingrained in them that it's part of their persona. They're always on the edge of violence and can become violent at almost any provocation, real or imagined, or to violently assert their dominance over others. Their violent assertion of dominance over others can enable violent people to become leaders of groups that themselves take on a persona of violence, becoming violent groups, like a violent gang. As violent groups, led by violent people, compete for dominance, whole communities can become victimized by violence, as violence breeds violence and spreads like a virus. Before I get into describing his research into violent people and summarizing many of his conclusions, who's Lonnie Athens? Lonnie Athens is a criminologist at Seton Hall University who studies violent criminals primarily through in-depth personal interviews to understand why they're violent. He's the author of several books, most notably for our purposes here, the book The Creation of Dangerous Violent Criminals. The results of Athens' research and thinking became widely known when Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Rhodes wrote a book about him in his work entitled Why They Kill, The Discoveries of a Maverick Criminologist. More recently, that book became the basis for a video documentary titled simply, Why They Kill. One of the most interesting things about Lonnie Athens is that he himself could easily have become one of the violent people he studies. He grew up surrounded by violence, 
but at a critical point in his life, he decided to study violence to seek to understand it rather than adopt it as a way of life. That background gives him a toughness and credibility when interviewing dangerous, violent people that most researchers don't have. He both literally and figuratively goes where few other researchers dare to go. Through in-depth, often multi-day interviews of well over a 100 violent offenders, usually in prison settings, Athens identified a common progressive pattern in all of them. All of them. He calls that pattern violentization. According to Athens, violentization is a process that develops in stages as a result of the prolonged trauma of chronic brutalization, usually beginning in early childhood in the home. The trauma of brutalization can be experienced either personally or vicariously by witnessing repeated acts of violence against a loved one. From there, the violentization process develops as a means of physical and emotional survival in what is perceived as a dog-eat-dog world. Ultimately, victims become victimizers, or as some put it, hurt people hurt people. Athens maintains that resulting acts of criminal violence as part of the violentization process are the result of a rational strategy adopted by victims of violence to protect themselves from further violence and its associated humiliation and pain. In essence, a strategy of fighting fire with fire. Successful experiences with the use of violence often lead to the development of a violent persona and a reputation that to be maintained requires further acts of violence, eventually reaching a point at which to relinquish a violent persona would be not only extremely difficult, but also potentially dangerous because it would render the violent person vulnerable to attack by enemies or rivals. In extreme cases, the violent persona evolves into a level of malevolence Athens labels as predatory violence. More broadly in scale, Athens maintains some communities have become what he calls malignant, not in the pejorative sense, but rather in the sense of violence having grown in them like a cancer. He observes that the spread of violence among people living in such communities can, in effect, turn them into violentization breeding grounds, especially for young people. Yet Athens maintains that in most cases, effective intervention strategies exist for both individuals and communities. To be effective, however, those strategies must be holistic and primarily community and household-based. This episode consists of three main sections, each accessible using the time links provided in the written notes. First, I'll summarize Athens' observations about five stages of violentization. Second, I'll summarize his recommendations for intervention at each of those stages, interventions aimed at stopping the violentization process and ideally even reversing it. In the third section, I'll summarize Athens' views regarding violentization at the community level, including his suggestions for potential interventions. So, what are the stages of the violentization process? Athens describes five. One, 
brutalization. 2. Defiance. 3. Violent dominance engagements. 4. Virulency. And 5. Violent predation. Athens says of these stages, The stages in this process can be pictured as a series of chambers, each having two closed doors, one marked entrance and the other marked exit. In order to get to the last chamber, one must first pass through each one of the earlier chambers. One could, however, never reach the last chamber, but could either stay locked in one of the earlier chambers or escape through one of the doors marked exit and leave the edifice altogether. Close quote. So now let's talk about the first stage of the virilization process, that of brutalization. The brutalization stage consists of three types of experiences. Violent subjugation, which is the trauma of being personally attacked by a subjugator. Personal horrification, which is the trauma of witnessing violent attacks on loved ones or close friends. And violent coaching. The first two experiences are deeply traumatic and always followed by the third namely coaching by someone who claims the solution to violence to the victim is violence by the victim, to fight fire with fire. Athens says that by the time it's completed, the brutalization stage usually involves all three experiences. It's possible, however, for a person to complete the stage who's never been personally attacked, violent subjugation, but who's been deeply traumatized by witnessing attacks on others personal horrification. Violent coaching is always involved. Athens says there can be a great variation in the time it takes to complete this stage, but that for most people, particularly males, the brutalization stage is completed by early adolescence. So let's talk about each of the brutalization experiences, starting with violent subjugation. During this experience, one or more bona fide or would-be authority figures from one of the victim's primary groups, such as their household or gang or something like that, uses violence to force him or her to submit to their authority. That can happen in either or both of two ways, coercion or retaliation. The main difference between the two forms of subjugation is the objective of the coercion is to get the victim to submit to the abuser upon which the attack on the victim stops, while the objective of retaliation is to punish, to teach the victim a lesson he or she will never forget. So the attack on the victim continues even after he or she is willing to submit to their abuser. So how does that look in practice? Athens describes the typical coercion scenario as something like this. The victim starts off defiant or disobedient, non-submissive. The subjugator, authority figure, uses violence or the threat of violence to coerce submission. During that process, usually a beating or something like that, the victim's defiance erodes into fear, maybe increasing to terror, panic, until the victim reaches the breaking point and submits, at which point the beating stops. But then in the aftermath, the victim's relief quickly turns to humiliation. 
Humiliation turns to rage at having been brutally beaten down. The rage is cooled when transformed mentally into the desire for revenge. The victim engages in mental fantasies of battering, maiming, torturing, or even killing the subjugator. But at this stage, that all remains fantasy. The second form of violent subjugation, that of retaliation, is similar, but it's different in that the use of violence is to punish the victim, not to beat them into submission, to punish them for some past disobedience or for some show of disrespect. Because the goal of the subjugator's use of violence is to assure that the victim won't be disobedient or disrespectful in the future, in other words, to teach them a lesson they won't ever forget, the beating continues even beyond the point at which the victim is willing to submit to make it stop. So the beating continues until the victim is beaten into an apoplectic condition or the subjugator becomes exhausted, whichever comes first. The stages and the consequences of each might go like this. The victim starts off defiant, but may also feel dread. As the beating commences, the defiance, the outrage or dread, turns to fear. Fear turns to terror, panic. But upon reaching his or her breaking point, submission is not enough to make the attack stop. The beating continues. The victim eventually lapses into an apoplectic state or stupor. After the beating stops, the victim feels humiliated. Humiliation turns to burning rage. That rage is only partially cooled when transformed into an intense desire for revenge, greatly exceeding what is felt after coercive subjugation. The victim experiences recurring fantasies about battering, maiming, torturing, or killing the subjugator long after a single episode of retaliatory subjugation ends. While the first form of the brutalization experience, that of violent subjugation of the victim, is experienced personally, the second form of experience is what Athens calls personal horrification, which is experienced vicariously. The victim of personal horrification doesn't personally undergo the violent subjugation, but rather witnesses another person or people the victim cares about being brutalized and subjugated. The witness victim vicariously feels and thereby experiences the beating or other brutalization of the physical victim. The process starts with a grave apprehension about what's about to happen. When the attack on the physical victim begins, the witness victim's apprehension gives way to strong feelings of anger toward the subjugator as every blow and the physical victim's reaction is hammered into the witness's mind as if experienced personally. The witness victim reaches a breaking point and feels a powerful, urgent desire to attack the subjugator to stop the brutalization of the physical victim. The witness mentally pictures himself or herself beating, maiming, torturing, or killing the subjugator. However, Fear of the subjugator causes the witness victim to decide not to act to attempt to stop the attack, following which the witness victim is then overcome with feelings of weakness and impotence and even guilt. The witness victim experiences shame because, in his or her mind, it was his or her weakness 
that prevented the attack on the victim from being stopped. When that feeling of shame or guilt is combined with fear of the attacker, the effect of personal horrification is amplified. At that point of humiliation and feeling powerlessness and vulnerability, regardless of the preceding experience, the violent coach steps in. In that relationship, the victim is placed in the role of a novice by someone, usually someone older, who plays the role of coach. Violent coaching is based on the stated or unstated premise that the world is full of many mean and nasty people, both inside and outside the novice's primary groups, and the novice must be properly prepared to deal with such people when he or she encounters them. The coach is always a member of one of the novice's primary groups, meaning household, gang, or some other close group. The novice may have multiple coaches, all at the same time or at different times. To be effective, violent coaches must have the credibility of being perceived by their novices as being or having been themselves authentic violent actors. Novices are taught to take violent action toward people who provoke them. The violent coach teaches the novice to always be forceful, dominant, and self-reliant to physically attack protagonists rather than try to pacify, ignore, or run away. They teach the novice to use at least enough force to win, even if it means causing grave harm. Violent coaches always teach that taking violent action against a protagonist is a personal responsibility the novice cannot evade, regardless of gender, age, size, or prior beliefs. The coaching techniques the violent coach may use are what Athens calls vain glorification, ridicule, coercion, haranguing, or besiegement. Vain glorification consists of the coach or others in the group under the coach's direction and with the coach's approval sharing lore and glorification of violent acts presented to the novice as a struggle between the good guys, and an evil villain in which the hero emerges victorious through the use of greater violence. The novice experienced the vicarious enjoyment of listening to these heroic tales. The teaching technique is that the moral of the stories is other people have achieved glory and become heroes through performing violent feats, and the novice can gain his or her own glory by performing similar violent feats. Ridicule usually takes the form of some sort of negative comparison. Here, the teaching technique is to torment long enough that the novice will take action to escape ridicule. Coercion, as a teaching technique, involves fear. In other words, the coach instills sufficient fear of the coach in the novice that the novice decides it's better to attack someone else than for the coach to attack the novice. Haranguing as a teaching technique is just what it sounds like, incessant melodrama, until finally the novice is convinced to do what the coach wants the novice to do. Besiegement is what Athens calls the teaching technique of essentially overkill, in which the coach combines all the other techniques that have just been described other than haranguing. Upon completion of this first stage of violentization, that of brutalization, 
the victim turned novice, is left in a confused, turbulent condition. That, in turn, sets the stage for stage two, that of defiance. Of the defiant stage, Athens observes that more males than females progress to that stage, beyond brutalization, which he attributes to his observation that more males than females receive violent coaching. If females do pass on to the defiant stage, they experience it much the same as males. While agonizing over their brutalization, victims in stage two seek to resolve their crisis by repeatedly asking themselves why they're being brutalized and what, if anything, they can do about it. In that process, they keep reliving in their minds the experiences of their brutalization, which further traumatizes them leading to feelings of hostility and contempt not only for those who brutalized them, but also for themselves because of their perception of weakness and feelings of humiliation that they felt during their past brutalization. Despite thinking about these matters during the brutalization stage, it's not until the second stage, the defiant stage, that the subject's problem of how to avoid future brutalization and its solution become crystallized in his or her mind in the form of the conclusion that his violent coaches may have been right. The only way to stop violent brutalization in the future is to become violent himself or herself. The defiant stage ends with the victim of violentization making what Athens calls the mitigated violent resolution, meaning qualified resolution, to attack and gravely harm or even kill people who seek to violently subjugate or degrade him or her. At this stage, the resolution for violence or use of violence is still strongly qualified, conditional. The person has made the decision to resort to serious violence including potentially lethal violence, but only if circumstances arise in which the person believes, one, such a resort to violence is absolutely necessary for the person's well-being, and two, the person has at least a reasonable chance for success. The person, now defiant, awaits only the proper circumstances to test the person's newly developed resolve to attack people physically with the serious intention of inflicting grave injury on them. At the end of the defiant stage, the person has decided to become a violent person. At this point, I'll add my own comment. The defiant stage is most likely to be observed by potential interveners in schools. The usual response to defiance in any setting, but in especially schools, is likely to be punitive based on the assumption that this is a kid that needs an attitude adjustment, which actually reinforces the child's view that the world is a hostile place in which big people force smaller people to submit. In contrast, if those observing defiance in a school setting or some other setting are informed by Athens' theory, instead of the response of, this kid needs an attitude adjustment, their response may be, uh-oh, this kid is behaving like he's been brutalized and has progressed to violentization stage two of defiance. 
he needs help or she needs help, and probably his or her family does too. Two very different responses leading potentially to two very different personal and public safety outcomes. Absent effective intervention, it's highly likely that the resolution that the person has made at the end of stage two, that they would resort to violence to protect themselves against violence, will progress to stage three, what Athens calls violent dominance engagement. It's at this stage that the person field tests his or her mitigated violent resolution to see if it works. At the beginning of this third stage, the question haunting the person in at least the back of his or her mind is whether, when the time fully comes, the person will actually be able to seriously hurt someone. If the initial test of violence against a provoker results in a major victory, the person may immediately move on to the next stage of violentization. A draw or a no decision will likely keep the person in limbo in this stage until the person experiences either a clear victory or defeat. After such a clear defeat or failure, especially after a series of failures, the person may go in one of two directions. First, conclude the resolution to resort to violence was a mistake and become resigned to being a perpetual victim and revert back to the defiant stage. Or two, resolve to next time use greater violence. On the other hand, successful use of great violence to resolve what is perceived as an undue or unjustified provocation strengthens the person's resolve to continue to use violence to resolve dominance engagements. The more decisive the successful performance or bigger the violent feat performed, the more quickly the violent resolution deepens and widens. At this point, the person has not only resolved, as at the end of stage two, to become a violent person, the person has actually become a violent person. But in itself, that doesn't cause the person to move to the next stage. That progression is in response to the responses of others to the person's acts of violence during stage three. In stage four, what Athens called virulency, after the person's series of successes in using great violence in response to provocation, the person has a new experience violent notoriety, and social trepidation in others. The person experiences newfound respect from others or is feared. People see the person as dangerous, maybe even crazy. The person senses that people now interact with him or her with trepidation. Ironically, the same sort of trepidation the person had previously experienced in the presence of certain people whom the person had feared. People now act more deferentially and cautiously toward the newly formed violent person because they are now the ones who fear touching the person off and somehow igniting a violent dominance engagement in which they could be hurt or killed by the novice violent person. The tables have now turned. At this point, the novice violent person must make a cost-benefit decision. 
about whether the costs of his or her new violent notoriety and resulting social distancing of others, including of people the person cares about, are outweighed by the benefits. In addition to the social distancing the person experiences, as people come to fear him or her, the person may experience social condemnation from people the person cares about as a result of a reputation for having done something those other people regard as being bad, especially if those other people think the violent person went too far in resorting to violence. And, of course, there are the risks of law enforcement action. On the other hand, among the potential benefits the novice violent person may perceive is the feeling that it's better to be known for doing something bad than not being known for anything at all. In other words, better to be regarded as a bad somebody than a good nobody. The person may experience greater power over his or her social environment, resulting in less personal fear of being victimized by others. And because other people think twice before provoking the novice violent person, the person may actually find it socially liberating to interact with people without fear of being provoked or disrespected or otherwise victimized. In comparison with painful memories of feeling powerless and inadequate and impotent while being brutalized in the past, the person's newfound sense of power and even social liberation, even if it's tempered by social trepidation in others, may be almost irresistible even addictive. If the novice violent person decides the benefits outweigh the costs, then that person may conclude that he or she has found the magic elixir to a fear-free life and may progress to the point of making an unmitigated violent resolution. In effect, doubling down on his or her violent persona to what Athens describes as malevolency. At this point, the violent person decides to not only embrace his or her violent notoriety, despite the social trepidation it generates among other people, but also vows to gravely harm or even kill anyone for any intentional provocation, real or perceived, however slight. At the end of this fourth stage, the former violent person has now become ultraviolent. Originally, that stage four of virulence was the last of the processes of violentization described by Athens, but he subsequently added a stage five, that of violent predation. For those who move on to this fifth level, their violence becomes increasingly unbound until it reaches an inhumane or barbaric level. Those who reach this fifth level of violentization realize that living up to their malevolent identity now requires scoring more major victories to boost their reputation for being a violent person, even ultraviolent. That, in turn, leads to what Athens calls violent resoluteness. The person decides that at this point in their violent careers, it would be more beneficial to reduce rather than increase the amount of provocation needed for them to physically attack other people with the intent of gravely injuring or killing them. After making that fateful conclusion, 
they become willing to engage in such attacks on other people without the inclusion of any element of a contest over domination. All it takes for the violent predator to attack is the victim's mere presence in the predator's domain, even unwittingly, or for the predator to feel his dangerousness has been disrespected because the unwitting victim failed to be appropriately afraid of the predator, even if only because the victim was unaware of his or her danger. An attack may even be provoked for no other reason than the predator's contempt for a victim's perceived stupidity for being in the predator's domain. Predatory violent criminals live and die by the motto, The strong kill the weak, and the weak kill the weaker still. Since for them, might makes right, it doesn't matter what they do, who they do it to, how, why, and when they do it, but only that they can do it without losing any sleep over it. Fortunately, Athens says that in his research, predatory violent criminals are the rarest form of the five types of violent criminals that he has identified. In summary, the violentization process is rooted in the chronic trauma of repeated experiences as a victim of violence in early life, leading to the adaptive behavior of fighting fire with fire by using violence to prevent being the victim of violence which can in turn progress into a form of addiction to a resulting violent persona as the victim becomes a victimizer. With that understanding, we're now ready to explore Athens' observations and recommendations for effective interventions at both the individual and community levels, which we'll pick up next in Part 2 of this episode.